Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. There's an intriguing overlap between the language of medicine and the terminology of economics. Patients can be described as sickly or depressed, and similar terms may be used in relation to sectors of an economy or even whole countries. The treatment plan may well be to offer a stimulant. Medical doctors might prescribe patients with a drug that stimulates their brain and makes them more focused and energetic. And in economics, central banks and governments can offer stimulus packages designed to boost output, although they don't always work. China's had a few stimulants in recent years, and the question we're asking today is, does it need more? We've called upon a well-qualified expert to help us consider this issue. He's Duncan Wrigley, Chief China Plus Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. Duncan, welcome to China in Context. It's good to find another Duncan working in this field. Good to meet you too, Duncan. Double Duncan today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's carry on working with our medical metaphor for just a little bit longer. If you were to offer a health check on the economy of mainland China in the summer of 2023, what would be your diagnosis? Well, my diagnosis would be parts good, parts ailing. So the good parts are services mainly. China's reopened this year, as I'm sure everyone knows. And like elsewhere in the world, consumers have rushed out and spent on some of the things they couldn't spend on during during the COVID lockdowns, like eating out and visiting places. But another part of the economy, China's traditional strong industrial side, um, good part is exported, but also good part goes to areas like property. You know, that area is really been slowing down sharply. Well, that's a good point, Duncan. I think people are having fun in China now. Apparently, a lot of people really enjoyed the Dragon Boat Festival this summer. Now, China's aim is a healthy development of about 5% growth. Is that what you expect to see for 2023? Well, let's break that down into the two parts, healthy and 5%. I think 5% is quite manageable for China. It's not that fast for by China standards, and it's coming off a low base. Obviously, last year was very weak, so doable. But healthy is another question. Uh, what China's trying to do this time around is rely much more on consumption and private business investment rather than traditional state sector. Um, and there have been signs of that emerging, but starting to slow and lose momentum now. That's quite a tricky balance, isn't it, for a country which has you know a strong sense of state control to be able to stimulate private sector growth and entrepreneurship. You're absolutely right. I mean, China's uh, policymakers' instincts are to reach for the uh, state stimulus buttons, if you like, which go for the state sector. Uh, But at the same time, they do acknowledge, for example, that 80% of jobs in cities is from private enterprises. They contribute much more innovation and growth. So uh, they do rely on the private sector for the momentum and the dynamism of the Chinese economy. Let's talk about those stimulus options. I'd like to start with the People's Bank of China. That's the central bank. Now, in June, it announced that it will cut the interest rate it charges on several different facilities it uses to supply the commercial banks with cash. Slightly complicated concept. Can you talk us through it and explain what's been the effect? Well, you're absolutely right. So the the People's Bank of China cut some of the lending rates that it lends to banks or the lending rates that banks borrow from 
in their own wholesale market by 10 basis points. As a fairly direct result, the banks as a collective which set the loan prime rate, uh, both one year and five year, which are the benchmark lending rates for the rest of the economy, whether it's households borrowing for mortgages or businesses for corporate loans, those reference rates were uh, pretty swiftly afterwards cut also by 10 basis points. So that should be uh, transmitted to the real economy. So does that lead automatically to increased growth? What's the impact? Well, 10 basis points is something, but it's not such a huge cut in context. Um, I think what we can hope for is probably coupled with other measures is it will gradually help to shore up sentiment and confidence among consumers, among businesses in the economy. But in itself, it is a rather piecemeal measure. Yeah, that's a good point about shoring up the confidence of investors. And that's been a theme of the, the, the senior Chinese politicians in their speeches and when they've been touring Europe and so on. Tell us a little bit about why you think investor sentiment is so weak on China at the moment. Well, investor sentiment uh, looks at where China is right now. Coming out of the, the, uh, the lockdowns, a bit of a rebound, but it's not very strong. And the outlook, the growth outlook for China is also not very strong, partly unambitious growth targets, partly also this, the healthier parts of the economy, the private sector, enterprises and consumers are really struggling to gain ground. And meanwhile, the rest of the global economy is very weak. So investors look at where China's going and say, well, maybe it's not too bad, but it's certainly not great by China's standards coming out of this kind of cycle. Now, China's a huge country. Are there particular regions which need more stimulus? And actually also a related question, do you think there are particular sectors which are struggling? Yeah, so the regions that are struggling are the less developed regions of China, in the western part, southwest, northeast, the old Rust Belt, the relatively dynamic regions of the more developed parts of China and the coastal east regions. In terms of sectors, I think the standout sector that's really struggling is a property sector. There was a whole wave of developer debt issues over the last couple of years. Those have not been resolved. Other sectors, it's a mixed bag. You mentioned the property sector. I mean, a few months ago, guests were coming on to this podcast saying it spells absolute disaster for the Chinese economy. Uh, there's a whole lot of debt tied up with the property sector. It could bring the whole economy crashing down and send China into a recession. That's not what I'm reading so much in the papers at the moment, now we're in the summer of 2023. Are you still worried about that? Well, so property sales are down 20-30% in absolute terms from where they were at the peak. So they are substantially down. But I guess where maybe some some of these observers uh, took a different tack is if you compare it, say, what happened in America before the global financial crisis, where you had a property downturn, that led to a massive systemic crisis in the US that obviously exploded to the rest of the world. We don't see that in China. Yes, home sales are down, but it hasn't led to the same debt crisis. One of the reasons is that home buyers are required to put a very substantial down payment on property, at least 20 to 30%, often more. And that insulates the banking system to a certain extent from this property sector downturn. Now, in your note to clients, you say that young people in China are struggling and you note that unemployment among 16 to 24 year olds is running at more than 20 percent. That strikes me as an alarmingly high figure. 
What do you think has led to this high youth unemployment rate? Well, there's two reasons. One is cyclical and the other is structural. Uh, the cyclical reason, obviously, the whole economy is slowing, but particularly the kinds of sectors which traditionally employ more college graduates, such as real estate, such as finance, such as online education, which got hit by regulations, and tech is the other one, internet. And the, the structural issue is that there's a mismatch between uh, the kinds of uh, jobs which are in hot demand and college graduates. So college graduates obviously don't have much experience. The kind of areas which are in hot demand are typically areas like R&D, engineering, technology. They kind of require a lot more experience and they tend to be in the manufacturing sector where college graduates don't want to work. Oh, is that the reason sometimes you see college graduates driving around the big cities on little motorbikes delivering takeaway meals to clients <laughs> rather than getting into those high tech sectors? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's kind of been well publicized, maybe a little bit hyped up that certain college graduates have gone into some areas which they wouldn't normally work in, such as, as you mentioned, delivery drivers, but also things like street vending, selling food on the street. The government is running a campaign to try and encourage these college graduates to kind of, you know, knuckle down, get their hands dirty, so to speak, and go and work in some of these areas where they wouldn't normally work. Well, I can understand why the government might think it would be a good idea, but uh, you could well imagine that a woman who's just, uh, you know, done a three-year degree at a top Chinese university might feel a bit resentful about selling smelly food on the streets of Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so, I, I mean, the actual data is hard to come by, the definitive data, but I think these stories are pretty anecdotal. There are one or two cases but in the grand scheme of things, it's not what's happening to most most of these highly educated elite uh, graduates from elite institutions are not willing to go and do this, this kind of work just yet. Now, there's a particular term which is used frequently by the Chinese government, common prosperity. We've had some very lively debates on this podcast about the best way to interpret common prosperity. But I would like to hear your view. Do you think this uh, idea of common prosperity is relevant to the debate about how to boost the economy without creating more wealth inequality? Yes, I think it is. I think it does inform some of the choices that are being made at the top level in Beijing. So in previous rounds, the typical stimulus was very much a huge monetary and credit creation, which tended to also spark off asset prices, the stock market, the property prices, and that very much benefited the wealthier parts of society in China, as it also did elsewhere in the world. What we're seeing this time around is uh, much more self-control, if you like, reluctance to, to press those buttons. And part of the reason for doing that is to avoid exacerbating the kinds of wealth inequality which emerged and grew larger during those previous upward cycles. And so that does tap into these kind of common prosperity concerns. So do you think then that the Chinese central bank and the government have been learning from their mistakes, as it were, what they did previously to stimulate the economy? And that's what we're talking about on today's podcast, actually um, had the side effect of causing greater wealth inequality and more social problems. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think they, they have been very much learning from uh, what they've done in the past and how that's gone. You know, besides common prosperity, the other big cost and side effect that emerged from that approach was a huge debt burden 
that uh, many sectors of the Chinese economy uh, face. Now, our conversation today has been about China in 2023. But looking further ahead, what do you expect for China over the next five to 10 years? Looking over the next five to 10 years, um, I see that China does have a strategy for economic growth. And that strategy is very much uh, prioritizing technology, industry, strategic manufacturing. Um, and so you can see the way that policy is designed to funnel lots of uh, people, <laughs> talent, but also the, the, the money into these sectors um, is very much about prioritizing developing the, the new wave of high-tech sectors, whether it's AI, whether it is uh, smart manufacturing. Um, obviously, there are some uh, current sectors, electric vehicles, for example, really doing well. Um, that is very much the priority of the Chinese government. And on top of that, also related to that is uh, what you call economic security. So ensuring strategic sectors, uh, whether it's food or key raw materials that are either produced in China or come from supply chains that are secure outside of China. Well, thank you, Duncan. It's been very interesting to get your insights. And I hope you'll come back later in the year to tell us your interpretation of the data which emerges in relation to China's economy. That was Duncan Wrigley, Chief China Plus Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute in London. You can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.